In John chapter 13, all the way through John chapter 17, John the Apostle records what Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't record. This is all unique material to John's account of the Lord Jesus on the week that he was betrayed. I want to read this passage of Scripture and then we will look at it in detail. Chapter 13, beginning in verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God, and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments, and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin, and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. He came to Simon Peter who said to him, Lord, do you wash my feet? Jesus answered him, what I'm doing you don't understand now, but afterward you'll understand. Peter said to him, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered him, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not my feet only, but also my hands and my head. Jesus said to him, the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. And you are clean, but not every one of you. For he knew who was to betray him. That was why he said, not all of you are clean. When we look at these verses, there are really three aspects of Jesus and his love that we need to take observation of. We, we need to look closely at and, and, and deeply into for our own lives and our own relationship with Jesus. And the first thing that we need to see is the life of love. Jesus is the ultimate servant. And he demonstrates his ultimate servanthood by having an abundance of love. And we see, first of all, in verse 1, his life of love. John says before the Passover, Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world, and having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. We want to observe Jesus' life of love because that's exactly what John is doing. In this one verse, he is describing for us the qualitative nature of the love of Jesus for his own. 
Just let's, let's step back for a moment and let's meditate on Jesus' life of love. He had a loving entry into the world. The Apostle Paul says that he did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, something to be grasped. No, he emptied himself and took on the form of a servant, taking on human flesh. Jesus had a loving entry into the world. He was willing to deny himself and his rights and come in and take on human flesh. He had a loving entry into the world. He had a loving ministry to people in the world. Well, we have seen so many things in the Gospel of John, and as we walked through the Gospel of Mark a couple of years ago and various uh, messages and lessons that we've had in, in the Gospels, what we have seen is Jesus had a ministry of love. He cleansed lepers because He loved them. He made the blind to see because He loved them. He made the deaf to hear because He loved them. He, he, he made the, the lame to walk because He loved them. He, he healed thousands of sick people. Not simply because he had the power to do so, because he had the love to do so. He raised the dead to life because he loved them. Jesus had a loving ministry. He had a, a loving heart. Can you remember, I guess it was a few months ago, when Nicodemus approached him in the middle of the night, and this Pharisee, this man who is steeped in religion apart from a right heart, Jesus loves him and shares with him the principle that you must be born again. And then right after that, we see that Jesus loves a Samaritan woman who is an idolater, who is an adulterer, who, who is a pagan, and he loves her and cares for her and blesses her. Why? Because Jesus had a loving ministry to people whom he loved. He he let little children come to him. He wept over the tomb of Lazarus. He wept over the city of Jerusalem. Why? Because he had a loving heart. He dined with sinners like me and you. Even though he was perfect and they were sinful, even though he was righteous and they were unrighteous, Jesus had a loving heart toward everybody that he encountered, and so he went to them. He had a loving entry into the world. He had a loving ministry to people in the world. He had a loving heart toward the people in the world. And he had a loyal love. This is the, this is the fact. He, he loved his Father in heaven. He loved people on earth. He loved Samaritans. He, he loved the Jews. He loved the Gentiles. He, he loved everyone. But there was a special allegiance and a special loyal love to what John tells us in this passage, to his what? His own. His own. He had a loyal love. Love. Now, in verse 1, I want you to make an observation of something very important. I want you to observe two words the Passover and his hour. John wants us to, to understand two things here. He wants us to see that it is the feast of the Passover. Now we know that the Passover, very, most of us are well acquainted with it, that, that this was a celebration meal to honor what God had done for the people of Israel when they were in bondage and in slavery to the Egyptians and the angel of the Lord would, would go over and would strike down the firstborn of every single house. But when... The Israelites shed the blood of the lamb and put that smeared the blood of the lamb over their doorpost. Then the angel of the Lord would pass over that house and not strike down the firstborn. And so God spared everyone 
that had the blood of the lamb over the doorpost. And so from that point on, perennially, the people of Israel would celebrate the night that God passed over and spared and saved the firstborn. And now John says, now before the feast of the Passover, he is He is casting a shadow. He is casting a future view of what Jesus is about to do. And then he he cements that reality when he says, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world. What time is it? It's the time of the Passover. What time is it? It's the time of Jesus' final hour. I just, you need to know that everything that comes after verse 1 is casting a shadow. It is, it is, it is casting a, a certain viewpoint toward the cross of what Jesus is going to do. Because th- this is what you need to know. You need to know that verses 2 through 11 is going to be a parable of the cross. Jesus taught in parables with his words, but now he's going to teach in parable by his actions. What we're about to see, Jesus Jesus will explain the cross, and then the cross will explain it even more. And so let's look now at his act of love. His act of love. He had a life of love. Now let's see his act of love. During supper, when the devil had already thrusted into the heart of Jesus to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had given all things into his hand, and he had come from God and was going back to God. What does Jesus do? He rises from supper. He rises from the meal, from the Passover celebration, and he lays aside his outer garments, his outer robe, and and what does he do? He, he takes a towel and he wraps it around his waist and likely throws it over his shoulder. And then he takes a, a container of water and he pours it into a basin. And he begins to wash the disciples' feet. Now, many of us are very familiar with this, this act of Jesus. But I think I could possibly bring some illumination in a couple of areas that will help us appreciate what's going on. First of all, um, it was commonplace. When I say commonplace, it was standard for whatever home you would go to. If you were visiting a neighbor, if you were going to a, a celebration or an event, there would be a basin, there would be a container of water, um, so that any guest who would come to your house, you would um, have available for them to wash their feet. And the reason is, is because people wore open-toed shoes if they wore shoes at all. Many didn't even wear shoes. And in the days of you know unpaved roads and animals everywhere, then feet are going to get both dirty and nasty and stinky and ugly um, and that's just the nature of things and people would they'd take a bath before they would come to an event or a supper or a dinner or an occasion such as this but they would still get their feet dirty before they got to 
to the location that they were going. And so this, was, this would be standard for there to be water. The second thing that I think might bring a little bit of illumination is that foot washing was reserved not for Jews. Foot washing was reserved for the lowest class of slave that existed. Like, the rabbis taught that, that, it was, um, that it was good to be a servant of the law, maybe even better a servant of the law than a teacher of the law. So rabbis would say, yes, if you love God, then you need to serve people. But there was a, there was a level, there was a baseline, and they would be unwilling to go below that baseline. And one of those below-the-baseline realities of service was washing another person's feet. That was reserved for the lowest of the low, the Gentile who had even a lower sta- uh, status on the, on the board within uh, slavery and servanthood. And so what does Jesus do? Jesus takes on the form of the lowest of the low and begins to serve his disciples. I want you to imagine for a moment what you think is going on in the upper room as they're sitting around a table, reclining, enjoying the Passover, and they look at Jesus, who they know is the Son of God, the Son of Man, the Messiah, someone who has the most power that they've ever seen, and they are sure that He has come from heaven. They, they believe that he is the king. I mean, they've, they've just asked, hours before John and, and James have asked, when, when you get into your kingdom, can we sit on your right hand and on your left because we know you are the king. Okay, and Jesus takes off his robe and puts on that towel and gets down on his knees and takes those men's feet and starts washing their feet and his hands go onto their toes and possibly in between those toes getting the dirt and the grime and the nastiness and possibly the manure out of them and then pulling them out of the water and drying their feet off one by one by one. What in the world are those disciples thinking at that moment? They think that this is appalling. They're shocked. Their, their jaws are dropped. They think this is inappropriate. This is not right. This can't be happening. This is not real. But Jesus is steadfast in his devotion to serve his disciples. You know, in Mark, on the same day he had given this lesson, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. If you're willing right now, would you just close your eyes for a moment? Picture the scene in the upper room. The creator, sustainer, of the universe 
has taken off his outer garment, has strapped himself with a tower, has become the lowest of the low, and is sticking his hands on the feet of sinful men like me and you, washing them one by one by one. Okay. All right. Now we can look back down at the text because we, we have his life of love and we have his act of love. Now let's look at the lesson of love in six and following. So Jesus finally comes to Simon Peter. And when, and when you see what Peter says t- to Jesus, you know, you know if anybody's going to say something to Jesus, who's it going to be? It's going to be Peter, the disciple with the foot-shaped mouth. All right? All right. So what, what does Peter say to Jesus? You've got to lean into the pronouns right here. Lord, like Master. Notice the title that he gives him. Lord, Master. The one who's above us, the one who's high above us. You're our teacher. You're our master. We learn from you. We're supposed to serve you. You not serve us. And so look at the pronouns. Do you wash my feet? Do you wash my feet? Jesus answers him, what I'm doing, you don't understand now. But afterward, you're going to understand. You mean after after you clean my feet? No, 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 no. After Jesus completely fulfills his act of servanthood, both on the cross and from the tomb and ascending into heaven itself, then you will understand. Because you've got to know that Peter is the same one who is about to deny him not once, not twice, but three times. Peter is the same one that after his death became in a depressed state of mind. Peter is the one who then went back to fishing because he did not know what else to do, had all but abandoned everything about following Jesus. And then Jesus comes to Peter on that shoreline and restores him and says, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And at that point, there is a sense in which Peter understood what Jesus did right here in this this upper room. But Peter says right now, you shall never, no, never wash my feet. It's a very interesting statement because there's a sense in which Peter is being humble. Like, you're the master, There's no way I'm letting a master do what a slave should do to me. But he's not so humble because he's willing to tell Jesus what he is or is not going to do. And so there's that combination of Peter's unique personality. But he says, you're not going to do it. And Jesus says, listen, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. You have no share with me. It's not a... That word share is not a common word that's really used a lot in the Bible, but but it is used on a few occasions. It's used in Luke chapter 15 when the, the youngest son wants his share. That means he wants his inheritance from the father. I want my share. I want my inheritance. 
It's used in the Old Testament in the Septuagint to describe the share or the the land that every tribe from the 12 tribes of Israel is going to get in the promised land. It has this concept of to to take part in, to participate, a certain portion of of, of being engaged in what God gives to His people. And Jesus says right here, You won't have a share with me if I don't wash you. And so Peter, in his standard personality, is just like, well, if that's the way it's going to be, like if that's, if that's going to be the deal, then not just my feet, but my hands and my head and my whole body, then you just pour it all on me and you do it. If we're going to do this thing, let's just go all the way, Peter says. And Jesus says, and he's teaching this lesson here, The one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. It's like that same standard if you were going to an event, if you were going to a Passover meal, if you were going to a wedding, if you were going to somebody's house just to have dinner with them, you're not going to knock on the door and say, hey, where's your bathroom and where's the water? I got to take a bath. You wouldn't do that, would you? But if you were in the first century and you walked a couple of miles to go see some of your best friends across town, you would bathe before you would go see them. But then once you got to see them, your feet are nasty, they're grimy, they're dirty, there's no telling what you got on them. And so you would just simply use the basin and the container and the water to wash off your feet so that you can enjoy the evening together with them. And Jesus is saying that very thing here. You're already clean. Your body has been washed. You are clean, clean, clean. You just need to have your feet washed. And he's teaching a spiritual principle right here. You, this is what we need to understand. When Jesus says, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean, we are talking about more than feet right now. Jesus is talking about more than feet right now. He's talking about salvation. Which is why he says, but one of you isn't clean. One of you isn't clean. And he said it because he knew that the devil had already thrusted into the heart of Judas to betray him. You know, when I was observing early on in the study stage of, of this message, I was observing attributes of Jesus. I said, you know, he's, he's omniscient. Like, if you just look at verses 1 to 11, look at what all Jesus knows. And he knows everything. And then it, I observed the fact that he's loving. And that he's a servant. And that he's powerful. But could you imagine being omniscient and knowing that a person that you're right now on your knees in front of, pulling up his feet that are dirty, nasty, grimy, and stinky, and you are washing his bare, dirty feet, that same individual is about to walk out of this room and turn you over to the superiors who are going to beat you and strike you and blaspheme you and spit on you and take you up to the top of Golgotha and nail you to a cross and murder you. That's love. 
That, that is servant love. Well, that's the lesson of love that, that Jesus foreshadows, teaches ahead of the cross. But I want to just jump right to what I believe is the big idea for us today. What I believe is the, the key truth that we need to take from this lesson. And I want to state it. And if you're a note taker, please take it down. If you're not, please absorb it. I'll say it like two or three times. But listen, Jesus is the ultimate servant who cleanses us thoroughly in justification, washes us strategically in sanctification, and prepares us ultimately for glorification. Jesus is the ultimate servant who cleanses us thoroughly in justification, washes us strategically in sanctification, and prepares us ultimately for glorification. That's what he does. Now, those are theological terms that are biblical, but let's let's just uh, identify what those are justification, sanctification, and glorification so that we can, we can truly apply this practically to our lives. All right, so in justification, this is the reality. You are legally guilty of treason against God. God made you for His glory. He fashions you in His image. He sustains you day to day. And yet, every one of us have rejected God. In some form or fashion, God in His love has made us for His glory and we have said, no, thank you very much. And so what happened is you and I deserve the sentence of death. We deserve condemnation. But this is what happened. God, the Holy Spirit, came into your life. You then responded to that by faith in Jesus and God declared you righteous. He put the robes of Christ's righteousness on your life and He said, you are righteous, righteous, righteous. Justification is God's declaration of your salvation. That's what justification is. He declares you righteous. And when Jesus says, if you've bathed, then you're already clean, he's essentially saying, you've been declared righteous. You are wearing the robes of my righteousness. Sanctification is also the, the, the work of salvation. So, so if justification is the past work of salvation, sanctification is the present work of salvation. Sanctification is the fact that God didn't just save you to put you up in a trophy case and to say, oh, I saved that individual. And then he pulls you off that trophy case and dusts you off every now and again and puts you back up there and so that he can just put you on display. No, sanctification is God's process of making you more and more and more like the righteous one, Jesus Christ. It is that ongoing work of salvation that God is doing in your life, and it's a present work. And then glorification is this reality, is that one day you will be ushered into the very presence of God. 
You will be brought in the presence of King Jesus and you will behold him who takes away all of your sin. You will be awestruck and mesmerized by him. You will be completely in worship of him. And all of a sudden what you will find is that you are like him. Your sin is gone. Your selfishness is gone. Your brokenness is gone. Your frailty is gone. Your unbelief is gone. All of that is gone and now you actually are like the Lamb of God who has taken away your sin. That's glorification. And that's the future work of salvation. And so when we read John chapter 13, verses 1 to 11, and we see Jesus' life of love, and then we see his, le- his, his act of love, and then he teaches this lesson of love, What he's really teaching us is about all that the cross accomplishes and all that the cross does, that he is the ultimate servant who cleanses us thoroughly in justification, who washes us strategically in sanctification and prepares us ultimately for glorification. And I want to give you three applications right now. What what am I supposed to do with verses 1 to 11 other than just to to be in awe of the servanthood of Jesus? First thing, accept the justifying love of Jesus. Just accept it. Accept it in your mind. Accept it in your heart. Accept it in your life. Some of you may not have a very difficult time accepting the justifying love of Jesus. And I would say this, praise God you don't have a hard time with it. Praise God that you can just, you wake up in the morning and you feel really good about your standing with God. You feel really good that you know you have a relationship with him, that he has a relationship with you, that he loves you, that you love him, that you know that you can't, you can't do anything to earn his love, you can't do anything to, to, um, to somehow walk away from his love, that he's not going to bring you back. You know that, and you live in confidence. And I just want to say, praise God for his work of grace in your life for that. That is a gift from heaven, and you need to rejoice in it. But there are a lot of us who have a really hard time resting in the justifying love of Jesus, the cleansing love of Jesus. We think to ourselves, man, we've got to work harder. We've got to do better. We've got we've to keep the law more. We've got to obey in this area better, or I'm going to lose what I've gained. I pulled a young man aside the other day, a baseball player, and I said, but do you realize that if... You hit a home run that God's not going to love you any more than he does right now. And I said, do you know that if you strike out, God's not going to love you any less than he does right now? Why? Because that's the justifying love of Jesus. Okay? So this is what you need to do. You need to do today is you just need to say, I have been cleansed. I have been cleansed from my sin by the blood of Jesus that has washed over me through his work on the cross for me. He made him who knew no sin to become sin, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. If anybody is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. That's the justifying love of Jesus. Accept it. 
Revel in it. Love it. Swim in it. And don't let legalism and moralism and do-goodism creep into your life and steal the joy of justifying love. The second thing I want you to do is I want you to accept the sanctifying love of Jesus. So you accept the justifying love of Jesus. Now you accept the sanctifying love of Jesus. This is really what Jesus is doing here in teaching Peter where he says, you don't understand this, but afterward you're going to understand. If I, if I don't wash you, you don't have any share with me. And the one who's bathed doesn't need to wash except for his feet. Except for his feet, but is completely clean. This is the thing. Peter had already given his life to Jesus. He was a disciple of Jesus, a follower of Jesus. He would go where Jesus told him to go. He would do what Jesus told him to do. He had already preached in the name of Jesus. People had already come to faith in Jesus through Peter's ministry. But Jesus talks to Peter about the fact that he needs his feet washed. It's it's a picture of sanctification. It's a picture of being made more and more like Christ as you live your life. It's a picture of shedding away the dirt and the rottenness and the stinkiness and the grime of personal sin so that you can be cleansed, so that you can be washed thoroughly and be more and more like Jesus. So church, this is what the Lord would have us do, accept the sanctifying love of Jesus. And so, how do you do that? You have to accept the sanctifying love of Jesus in your attitude, in your actions, in your routines, and in your relationships. You know, I think that as as believers, and the more that we walk with Jesus, this is what we do. We, We learn habits that will help us be faithful to Jesus and that will help us be um, kind of a resounding witness to others about the transforming work of Jesus. And then we get comfortable with that kind of lifestyle. We get comfortable with and and, and pretty good at living uh, a sanctified, set-apart life in those areas. You know, we get comfortable with not watching certain kind of movies anymore. We get, we get comfortable with not using certain kind of language anymore. We get comfortable with not yelling and screaming at, at people that love us anymore. We, we, we learn how to shed those things and embrace this sanctified life, but at the very same time, there are still areas, there are pockets in our life that, that, that are dirty, that are unclean that are stinky and grimy and that still need to be washed. There's this daily process of having to wash ourselves and and letting Jesus wash us so that we can truly embrace the life that he has for us. And I want to ask you right now 
what does that process look like in your life? What, what kinds of things this week have you sought to wash and to let Jesus wash away from your life that you might be more and more like him in holiness? Because some of us, and I don't know how many, I don't, some of us don't have a process for having our feet washed by Jesus. Some of us don't have a process for putting off sin and putting on Christ, for rejecting sin and getting rid of it and then being held accountable for growing in godliness and in holiness. We're very content with where we are and we just get content in the justifying love of Jesus and we don't embrace the sanctifying love of Jesus and we stay stagnant and then we go backwards. And this is not good because Jesus says to Peter, And he essentially says to us, if I don't wash you, you have no share with me. The third application is to await the glorifying love of Jesus. And I put this in here, not so much that it's tightly in the text. I mean, Jesus does say, I'm about to depart out of this world and I'm going to go back to my father. And we know that when he goes back to his father, he's preparing a place for us. He's preparing a place for those whom he justifies and those whom he sanctifies because one day he's going to glorify them and there's going to be a resounding chorus of people who sing the praises of Jesus who has justified and sanctified and now glorified those who put their faith in him. But I say await the glorifying love of Jesus and I say await it with joy and await it with confidence and await it with passion because if you don't have a picture of the reality that that one day you're going to say goodbye to this body and goodbye to this sin and goodbye to this brokenness and you're going to say hello to Christ's likeness and His presence and His glory and His beauty where He is going to shine like the sun. There'll be no need for the ball of heat that we have on this earth today because He's going to shine and there are going to be trees and streams and rivers and mountains and everywhere that we go we're going to behold Jesus and be like Him and it's going to be glorious. When you don't have that vision, then what is your motivation for sanctification? And so I'm asking you to anticipate and await the day that you're going to see Jesus face to face. And as you anticipate it and long for it, then I want you to look back at your sanctification and I want you to say, I embrace and accept Jesus washing my feet every day and getting my sin rid of. Please turn to 1 John chapter 1. First John chapter 1. Phil, would you come up here and would you mind just maybe playing some instrumentally a little bit on your, on your guitar? Because I just want us to have a meditation here, church. If you look down at John's letter, he wrote the Gospel of John so that people would believe that Jesus is the Christ and that believing they would have life in his name. And and church, if you're believing in Jesus, then you have life. You've been saved. 
You've been justified. And then he writes this epistle. And, and he says so that you can know that you have eternal life. I want you to have eternal life, and I've written all about the life of Jesus and the death and resurrection of Jesus. If you believe in Him, you'll have life. All right? Now he writes this epistle, and he says, I want you to know that you have life. I don't want you to live life confused. I don't want you to live life wondering and questioning whether or not you have salvation. I don't want you to live life waking up every day and thinking you've got to ask Jesus into your heart every day because you're not sure you did everything right the, the day before. So he writes this, and look at chapter 1. Let's just pick it up in verse 7. Well, let's start in verse 6. He says, if we say we have fellowship with Him, that is, with God, if we say we have fellowship with Him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He's in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus' Son cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make Him a liar, and His Word is not in us. If you don't mind, just read verses 8 and 9 and 10 again on your own. Uh, Ryan and Andrew, of the 400 inmates at the Calhoun County Jail, how many of them would say that they don't sin? Probably zero. Would you say the same thing, Andrew? Probably zero would say that they don't sin. Of the thousands of, of neighbors that we have who live on our streets and in our neighborhoods and on our cul-de-sacs, if we went door to door and we simply asked them, are you a sinner? How many of them would say, oh no, I'm not a sinner? Maybe one or two, maybe. So this is what I'm going to tell you, church. If we just simply say, well, we're sinners, what are we saying any more than the world says? What are we saying any more than the world says? John says that if you confess your sin, you confess your sin, that you, you have dirty feet, God is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness.
I really don't want us to be like the world. I really don't want us to give lip service to God. Oh, we're all sinners. I think we could be in trouble if we don't confess our sins, both to God and to one another. We walk out and just say, oh, we're all sinners, but praise God for justification. Praise God for sanctification. A lack of personal response to the cleansing servanthood of the Lord Jesus. It's probably a, it's probably a bad thing. So I think we, we should probably confess our sins. We should probably say, hey, I, I struggle here, or I, I, I'm not good here. I, I need Jesus to cleanse my feet. I, I need Jesus to sanctify me in these areas. We need to have authentic humility before God and before one another. That's what we need. Formal religion is worthless apart from authentic love for God and humility before one another. Judas had formal religion. Judas preached Jesus. Judas had done a lot of things that looked really good. But he was a son of perdition. I want to tell you, I I am uh, like Paul. I am the chief of sinners. I tell you what, even my work for God, I... I feel like I, I, I'm so on task for God that I often lose relationship with the people of God. I'm so on mission for the gospel of God that I can look beyond the needs of the people of God. While well-intentioned, it often can be um, unloving. And that's sinful. And I need the Lord to wash my feet in that area. I need to learn to rest in Him. And I need to create margin in my life so that I can just be with people. And I want to confess that to you, church. I want to ask you to pray for me so that I can be more relational with my family, with you, with everyone around me. I need the sanctifying love of the Lord Jesus. And I even plead before him in this moment for that. Are there any areas where you need to have the sanctifying love of Jesus wash you? You need to embrace and accept Jesus' sanctifying love so that you won't stay in the same place you are right now. Is there anything that you need to confess before the people of God so that they can pray for you, we can love you, and that we can even seek to encourage you? We want the Lord to wash our feet. We want the Lord to sanctify us and to make us more embracing of His love in areas where we need it.
you know, like with Candace and maybe self-reliance, and with Jamie with uh, maybe the fear of man and um, almost the white knuckling of of kind of doing this. What's interesting is that both of you I know are trying to you're trying to parent for God. You're trying to love people for God, for Jesus. Um, but when you do it in your own power or you do it out of fear or, or when you have fear of other people, what you're doing for God in your own power strips you of the ability to actually magnify God in that circumstance. And the same is true for me and my own sin and my own brokenness. And, and that's why I said, church, um, before you can do anything for God, you have to be served by Him first. Before you can serve Jesus, you have to be served by Jesus. And so you have to have, as it were, like we've got to take the water that's in the container and the water of Jesus' love has to wash over your feet, over the fear, over the self-reliance, over the isolation, over the task-drivenness, over the worldliness, and you just got to be willing to be washed by the sanctifying water of Jesus. You've got to stick your feet in and stay there long enough to let Jesus get in between your toes and say, I'm going to take that fear away. I'm going to take that self-reliance away. I'm going to take that fear of man away. I'm going to take that anxiety away. I'm going to take that work hard, white knucklet away. And I'm just going to let you rest right now as I put my hands on your feet. And I'm going to wash you thoroughly right now so that when you leave here, you know you're loved by me. You know you're served by me. And you can go out and do it in my power. Don't. Don't leave today without letting Jesus just wash you, cleanse you, and love you. You must be washed by Jesus before you can go out and serve Him. Be washed by Him.